0: the successes they've had, ways that they have become so definitively focused on moving forward. We look forward to sharing their stories, and we hope that they inspire you just as much as they have inspired us. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. Welcome, everybody, to the next episode of Focused on Forward. Today, we're talking with Michael klan and Michael has a really interesting story and background to share with us, but uh, most importantly, we want to not only focus on his story, but we're excited to see how, through the different challenges that life has thrown at him, how Michael has focused on forward and focused on continuing to move forward. So, Michael, we're, we're excited to have you. Thank you for being here.
1: Yeah, it's great to be here.
0: Thank you. And uh, anytime you're ready, just go ahead and go. We're just going to sit back and listen, and I'll I'll jump in with a question every now
1: and then. Yeah, no problem. So I guess the um, the quickest way to start, is to give a little bit of background. So I was, um, raised with a pretty traditional family, you know, sit down to dinner every night, that kind of thing. Um, you know, dad had the job, mom was at home, that, that kind of stuff. So it was pretty, um, pretty normal. And that's in air quotes, of course. Um, my parents came from two different, very distinct backgrounds. My mom came from more of a Kentucky. Uh, my grandfather had a real thick accent on my mom's side. Um, and I'd never knew this about him, but as a, as a younger man, you know, and and in my my wife's or my uh, mother's frame of mind and her reference, he was kind of a lamp throwing bourbon drunk kind of down south. kids are lazy, you know. Get everybody out of bed at three a.m. to go up north. Um, you know, kind of family. They had ten kids, um, two sets of twins. So it was this huge kind of chaotic family background um, with this sort of sort of mean drunk um, kind of influence of alcoholism in their family. And on my dad's side, um, you know, my great grandfather drove the first car off the assembly line and he's the one that took the, the idea for the assembly line to Henry Ford. He was at Swift company meatpacking. So we had this whole, and that side of the family was like, you know, living in this big mansion in Highland park. And the third floor was all the servants quarters. And so, they were alcoholics too, come to find out, but they were the more socially acceptable alcoholics. That was the, you know, my dad had a watch with fives all around it. It's five o'clock somewhere time for a drink. Um,
0: so the, the, the pinkies up,
1: yeah, the pink, the pinkies up, you know, the, the highball glass with the ice clinking and you're always got to drink it in your hand and you talk a little like this and it's, you know, very, uh, very acceptable, but the takeaway from that was, you know, here's my mom's family with this, you know, really harsh alcoholism in the background. But then, you know, like I said, I never knew my grandpa like that. So he had sobered up at some point and they had a pretty normal family, and then he ended up dying of black lung because he was an old coal miner down south. And then my dad's family, though, you know, drinking like that was not a bad thing. So there was this distinction between what kind of alcoholism was okay. Uh, and it was just from lack of education, really. So as a result, it was always a bar. It didn't matter if one person was coming over. All the booze bottles came out and the glasses and the little ice bucket and all that stuff because that's how you hosted somebody. And it didn't matter what the occasion was. And, you know, by 13, I was a bartender. You know what I mean? I would I'd put on my little tie and I'd have fun doing it, you know, at events at grandma and grandpa's anniversary party. I would stand there with my little bow tie and be a bartender. And it was all, you know, all fun and games. So then... um you know because of that obviously you you know when you're a kid a little extra grenadine and you know you bring me an empty glass my dad always said that when he was doing the same thing as a kid you know he would you got to finish the last little bits of what the guy you know had in his glass and when you make a new drink for him maybe you make it a little too little too deep and while he's laughing at the bar you take a little sip out of it and hand it back to him so i was drinking really you know if i'm being honest i was drinking at a very young age like 13 14 years old not every day, not an alcoholic, just this kid that occasionally drank some stuff. Well, you know, my, my life was really weird. My dad was a programmer on those $6 million man kind of computers. And so he taught me to program from a very young age. And, and when I say young, I mean like really young. Uh, he took me to his office to key in my first program when I was like seven. Uh, and I was, you know, writing games and hacking in my, you know, mid teens and um, was just, that was a thing I did, but back in the eighties, being a nerd, wasn't cool. So, and this kind of fits into the whole alcoholism thing, being a nerd, wasn't very cool, but being a DJ or something like that was, and I always kind of loved that whole, that whole thing, the whole show businessy thing. So I went to broadcasting school. I had a DJ company in high school. I went to broadcasting school and I got in this whole ego, ego slathered career of being in a morning show in Detroit and and all that kind of thing, and while it wasn't, you know, it, while it wasn't something that led directly to alcoholism, it was this party kind of a job. So we would do remotes, and I'd drink, and I'd drink at all the weddings when I was DJing in high school, and because nobody asks if the DJ is twenty one, they don't care. Um, so by the time I was a pretty young man, like late teens, early twenties, I was drinking pretty much every day. Um, that you know, you don't plan on becoming an alcoholic, but that's, a, that's what happened. You don't, it's not like you wake up, you know, one day you're not and the next day you are. And it was this thing, this trick that blindsided you like a robbery in your house. You just kind of end up wow, man, I'm a little shaky. I need a beer. You know, you realize, and you put that together cause you're not an idiot, but now you kind of don't know how to get out of it. Um, so that progressed until I was drinking, you know, right around a fifth a day at my worst and at my worst sounds like it was short. It wasn't that was anywhere from eight to 10 years ish that I was drinking a fifth a day. So Christmas was always a challenge because nobody sold. So you had to buy an extra fifth before Christmas. Um, Hiding the bottles was its own whole ritual, you know, ritualistic way to live and um, getting rid of the empties was the same kind of ritual, your ritual. And you know, Oh, I've got a little while alone while my you know girlfriend or wife is gone. Um,
0: So during this time, would you say that you were a functional alcoholic or, or were there, you would drink and you were a stumble? No, because there is a difference. There
1: is. Yeah. And what's really interesting about that is my very best friend that I met in school and he's still my best friend now, um, or one of, one of my two best friends now. Um, and you know, the one best friend I drank with a lot and he drank a lot and I don't know whether or not he really noticed that I was an alcoholic, or if I could just put it away like he put it away. And he's, you know, interestingly, he's not an alcoholic. He has complete command of his use of alcohol to this day. My other friend also has complete, you know, command of his use of alcohol, but he never knew that I was an alcoholic for all these years. I'm sure he thought I could put away beers pretty good, but the beers were really just a way to mask the smell of the vodka I was drinking on the side. So in that sense, You know, drinking with my friends was, you know, never sloppy for me. I was a very high functioning alcoholic. And when you drink it like a fifth a day, your blood alcohol level is somewhere around, and I'm not missing a decimal here. It's around point. I was at point three. I was in the point three range pretty much all the time because when I would get down to point one or point two, which, you know, legal limits to drive are like point oh something, depending on the state you're in. Um, so I was legally many times past drunk like all the time because when I would get down to point one, point two, I would end up shaking. Uh, if I was really getting down to like 0.1 where somebody normal would be drunk, I was vomiting from detox. So I kept myself pretty highly lit all the time. I never slept more than really four hours or so. Um,
0: That's both amazing and scary at the same time.
1: Yeah, it is. And it's, it's really weird. My dad, one time I was going into a treatment center. I'm kind of jumping forward for a bit here, but my dad, we were going into a treatment center and a lot of treatment centers are just that they're not hospitals and they don't want you to die. Um, Alcoholism, interestingly enough, is one of the, is the only addiction that can be listed on a death certificate as the cause of death, like cause of death, alcohol detox. Every other drug doesn't affect all your systems. Alcoholism affects every system you have. Um, I can't list them because I forgot to go to medical school. But, you know, your endocrine system, your digestive system, your, you know, respiratory system. So it's a really dangerous thing when a, when a drunk tries to sober up. So most treatment centers will make you go to the hospital first. So my dad and I go to the hospital. I said, I got a bed at a treatment center. I need to go to the hospital and detox. The hospital was crazy. I don't remember why. So he, um, he and I were on a, I was on a gurney and we were in the hallway and they had drawn my blood and I told him why I was there. And, they uh, I, like an hour or something went by. My dad's standing next to me on this gurney and I'm sitting up and this lady came in and I'd filled in all my paperwork and I'd told everybody why I was there. And they said, sorry, we had a script in the lab. We need to draw your, your blood again. So they drew drew another vial and they went back and a ton more time went by and they came back and the second one was higher. And the reason they drew my blood was not because they made a mistake. It's because when they saw the result and they compared it to how I was acting, they thought it was a, an error when the reality was my stomach was still full of booze and my alcohol blood level was still going up. So the only times I've ever really had my blood taken were either detox or in conjunction with talking to a cop. And it was always above 0. 0.4 or point three seven ish. So, and several times over 0. 0.4. So yeah, I was a very functioning alcoholic for so many years. When I finally ended up, staying sober, I would say in open talks that I would give it at AA that I walked between the raindrops for like a decade, because during that time, the functional alcoholic time, when my best friends didn't even really realize it. And my wife certainly didn't at the time, my first wife, I never lost a job. I never wrecked a car. I never hit anybody. I never, you know, I don't I know I blacked out. I must've, but I don't recall doing that at all, which is kind of an ironic thing to say. I really don't remember blacking out. Um, <laughs> you know, it's,
0: but it's still, it's amazing in of itself that, that none of those things happened with such a high, you know, BAC.
1: Yeah. And then that's what was really so kind of odd about that. I came to realize that once I, once I tried to sober up, well, first of all, It's probably worth mentioning that you don't decide to sober up first, most of the time. And I've learned this from hundreds and hundreds of tables with thousands of AAs over the years, but you know, most of the time you are kind of forced for some reason, somebody's sick of your behavior, somebody, you know, a cop or a judge is sick of your behavior, a spouse is sick of your behavior um, for whatever reason, you're f- kind of forced into it at the beginning. I've, I've very rarely heard any story where somebody on their complete own volition says, wow, this is really a terrible way to live. It's very rare to hear that. I've probably heard it. That's probably an overstatement that I've never heard it, but that's pretty rare. So I was no different. I was doing a bottle purge. I was working afternoons. My wife happened to be gone. So I was like, "Oh, here's my opportunity. So I went around to all my stashes and I had two full kitchen size bags of Of empties empty fifths and pints and they were sitting on the kitchen table as I got ready which is always also a weird thing to do who puts garbage bags up on a kitchen table um and I ran around and I got ready for work because you know I was late now running late because I had to take this time to do this maintenance um and I got out of the house and I didn't realize until I was about 30 minutes from work north of Detroit driving to this job that I left them on the kitchen table And I couldn't turn around and go get them or I'd be late for work. So I just kind of took my medicine and I went to work and I worked my whole day and I came home in the morning and here's, you know, some cars from guys from my church and my, you know, my, my mother-in-law's car, my brother-in-law's car. And I knew exactly what it was. So I drove straight by the house and went and got some booze and I put that down my neck first. And then I went in and took my medicine and that was the beginning of the whole sobriety thing, but it was forced. I went to my very first meeting with a book called how to, how to quit drinking without AA. So I mean, I was an obstinate. I'm different than all you people. I'm not the same as you.
0: Right. I'm not a drunk. I'm, I'm just, you know, I just enjoy my booze. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I have an unusually high tolerance. Yeah. So the, I I sober up um, quite against my will, but I do it and I actually stay sober for other than right now. Yesterday was actually my, my 18th, year of sobriety i got a little little cake thing (laughs)
0: congratulate congratulations on that that's a big that's a big monument
1: yeah thank you we went to bed last night my wife was like i'm really proud of you and i'm like for what because now it's been forever um and she said for just staying sober so long i don't know that i could even stop drinking for that long and i'm not an alcoholic but so anyway the the takeaway here is that i you know i got caught I went into recovery with this attitude that I'm going to learn everything about alcoholism. And I know it's c 2 h 50 and I know it's one hydrogen molecule away from heroin, which is C2H50. And you know, I I learned everything I could. And I just really, I was going to be smarter than everybody because I spent my life being smarter than everybody. Some people are more athletic than everybody. I identified myself as smarter than everybody. So you know, that was my approach. Okay, I'm a brainy guy. I'm going to learn how to quit this, and I'm going to beat it that way. And I did for seven months, and in AA, they'd tell you you white-knuckled it, and that's pretty probably pretty true. But another thing that really happens is that you wake up and you realize that the people in your life are hostages, and sometimes you wake up and realize that the spouse in your life is a person you don't even know because you fell in love with them under a fifth of alcohol. And that happened to me. So I'm living at my parents. I sobered up. My wife says, okay. And at this time I had a two-year-old son with my, my wife then. And she said, you know, William and I are ready for you to come home. And I said, I don't think I want to come home. And she said, okay. And that phone call ended and I was served papers and we got a divorce. It was very little talk. So this is where kind of my whole faith thing comes in. I'm not going to dip too far into that. I've been to enough AA meetings to know that, you know, religion is a, it was a very personal thing, Fair uh, enough. but I, um, I'm in this apartment trying to kill myself. The rent was going to run out. My wife had left me. Finally, I finally pushed her away hard enough because I didn't, I loved her still. I didn't want her to be around when I died basically. Uh, My parents had gotten an alarm system to protect themselves from me. My sister hadn't let me see her kids in forever. I was already ordered, you know, I was, I was already not seeing my every other weekend son anymore, um, by a court order. Uh, so I was, I had effectively cut off every tie I had. And when my wife moved away and I knew that the apartment was going away soon because there was no money going to it, because she was the only one that was dragging us along financially, um, I could finally die in peace well, she's out in Brighton. I'm downriver in Michigan, which is for those who don't know the area about an hour drive ish. And for whatever reason, she was calling me and calling me and calling me. And I, uh, I wasn't answering. So she just takes a notion, which is kind of out of character for her at the time. Cause she had, she had finally separated herself from me and putting distance between my unhealthiness. She decides to drive downriver and, and check on me. So she goes to the house And I had, because I was actually trying to kill myself, I had really barricaded myself in. The door was locked. The chain was on it. The storm door was locked. There was no good way to get in this apartment. Little tiny apartment we lived in, had lived in. Um, And so she gives up and she leaves. She's like, well, I can't get in. So she's walking to her car. Here comes this guy that I met in in a mental institution, one of my stays, that we had come to know after that, the two of us. And he sees her in the parking lot or coming down the stairs or something. And he says, Hey, how you been? Oh, and they kind of, you know, shoot the breeze for a minute and share a quick conversation. And what are you doing? I'm leaving. I, you know, I've left Mike and all this stuff. And and what are you doing here? I'm checking on him. He hasn't answered his phone. And she said, I can't get in. He says, I can get in. So he goes to his car and he gets some tools, I think is the way the story goes. And he breaks into the house and they find me and all my bodily fluids had, you know, had released all my body bodily functions had released. It was just, it was this mess. Um, and you know, I, they got the paramedics and saved me. And the really weird thing is I still didn't even stay sober after I got out of, you know, I was in ICU and I'd been bleeding out of my mouth and throat and just this terrible ball of awful, almost dead. And I still drank even after I got out of the hospital, but I, I think that was finally it. It was like, all right, well, I can't, I can't live and, and I'm, I clearly can't die. So I guess I need to figure something else out. And I was finally sort of ready. That's where that whole bottom thing comes in. Um, and I, I was, def- I was defeated really was what the, the takeaway is. So that, that was the beginning of this sobriety that I'm in now for 18 years and 12 hours is that, um, you know, I, I if they told me what to do, I did it. It was, it was, you know, not complacency. It was being open to agreement. Uh, it was being open to whatever they're going to tell me to do.
0: More of a stage of acceptance, would you say? Yeah, actually, that's the
1: right word. Um, There's a spot in the AA book that says, acceptance is the answer to all my problems today. When I find, uh, let's see, acceptance is the answer to all my problems today. When I am unhappy, I can find no rest. Uh, If I'm unhappy about a person, place, thing, or situation, I can find no uh, peace without accepting that person, place, or situation exactly as it is and not how I would have it. And that notion of acceptance, step one in AA says admitted. It doesn't say accepted, which is a really interesting distinction because I admitted that I had had a problem years ago. Before I was a fifth a day, I knew I was an alcoholic because like I said earlier, I shook. I detoxed when I wasn't drinking. I had to drink every day. I knew, intellectually, I knew. So I had admitted it years earlier. But now I had finally accepted, okay, this is the way I'm going to be, and I'm not going to do it without doing these things that everybody else says to do. You know, sober people will tell you how to stay sober. And yeah, I was finally ready for that. So fortunately, I went into a treatment center and I was in there for, um, well, formally in there for nine months or uh, six months. And then when I quote unquote graduated the program, I, uh, they hired me. And I was able to live there for another three months because I was not quite ready to leave. I told them I don't want to go home. And it was because, you know, i had failed so many times in five years, relapses that I don't even know how to count, that I didn't want to mess this one up. I'd just given a half a year of my life to living in a treatment center with all men. And I was such a profound drunk when I was in treatment centers with 30 or 60 men. There was usually only two or three that drank like I drank. Um, granted there wasn't, they weren't all alcoholics. Usually that was a mix, you know, there's addicts for other drugs and things. And there wasn't usually a, a a lot of drunks like me in terms of the volume or this quote unquote, success of drinking, being able to drink that much and function for so long. And that therapist that I got when I was in that stay happened to be a drunk like me. Um, and you know, I, I managed to stitch together. Now eighteen years of sobriety, and that's been a lot of work um, I had to relearn you know the first year was almost spent in treatment and then my next year out um, the day that my wife picked me up to drive to her home in Howell that I'm sitting in now um, she stopped halfway at a gas station I think and took a pregnancy test because I was visiting her in those last three months I was an employee I wasn't officially an inmate so to <laughs> speak or a patient so. I was pregnant, or she was pregnant with, we were pregnant with our daughter that we have now, and she's 16. Um, So my daughter and my son have never, my younger daughter and son um, have never known me as a drunk. My oldest son really only knew me as a drunk prior to about six, but it really definitely affected him.
0: So just to to circle back real quick, you said that uh, there's a term white knuckled it. Can you explain what that means?
1: Yeah, and I think this applies not just You know, alcoholism, I think it's a way that people, I think white knuckling happens more than people realize it. And it probably goes across all the people that you talk to as well for your podcast. If you're holding a steering wheel really, really tight because you're stressed or you think you're going to get in an accident or maybe you're speeding a lot or maybe there's a huge downpour. And you're just really trying to focus. I remember driving through the Rocky Mountains uh, with my wife or the Smoky, Smokies, not Rockies, driving through the Smoky Mountains going down south. And it was dark and it was pouring rain and every curve and every hill was one you couldn't see behind. And if you look at your hands, when you're doing something like that on the steering wheel, your knuckles literally turn white and the meat of your hands is, is normal color, but your knuckles, you're squeezing so hard. You're trying to maintain control so hard, and it's such an unhealthy situation. The reality is you shouldn't be on the road. You should probably just get a hotel and wait it out. But we don't do that as people. We tend to grab the steering wheel even tighter, and we grip our teeth, grit our teeth, and we just push and push. And that phrase, it's used in recovery a lot, but I think it applies to kind of everything. Um, because we don't often practice for the things that are thrown at us. It's very, I think, rare for people to be ready for these unexpected things. And so I white knuckled for seven months because I was going to be different than everybody else, which is kind of universal among addicts, but I could do a whole podcast about that. So I stay sober. I'm not with my wife. I meet my wife now. And she's an amazing person. Now, keeping in mind that I was kind of a walk between the raindrops alcoholic for so many years. My first wife enjoyed a high functioning person who had a decent job and who I wasn't in radio at that point. The alcoholism kind of and the, and the egotism kind of got me out of radio on my own. Um, and, a, and a real loathing for myself, too, that is, is a real commonality. Uh, believing you're a fraud and believing you're really not any good and you're kind of tricking everybody. Uh, Cause on the one hand I identified myself as smart, but I also identified myself as a scammer and I was not really as talented as everybody thought I was. I was just, I was just fooling everybody. I was good at it. So <clears throat> I, uh, I meet this woman. She's amazing. She's young, way younger than me. She's seven years younger than me. Um, One of the most inspiring people I think I've ever met in my whole life. But she too went through a really weird kind of childhood. Um, And again, that's, that's her show not mine. So, um, her story to tell, but she was just this amazing, you know, kind of forged by fire, kind of a person. She was out of the house when she was 17 and she, you know, took, had two jobs and got herself through high school and, and just this amazing kind of person, but she was also young enough that she really was dazzled by how awesome I was. And I say that tongue in cheek, but I think it's kind of true when she listens to this, she'll probably hit me, but um, and that fed my, that fed all the insecurities I had, you know? Uh, so she, unfortunately, because of her youth and because of her background, she was also a perfect codependent to an alcoholic. So I met her sober. Uh, that was the time, like I said, that I stayed sober for seven months. Um, we ended up a couple. We ended up getting married. But that five years that followed that seven months, was a nightmare because one thing that happens that I didn't realize was when a a person that's alcohol drenched for that long sobers up, all the control and predictability goes away.
0: So it's like releasing a spring. You were just able to fire. Kind of. Kind of go off and do kind of going off and doing your own no,
1: thing. No, so it was it was the opposite. It was that the control that I enjoyed, quote unquote, being an alcoholic that was just drunk all the time and the thing that made it so predictable and I knew how much I could drink and I knew how I could bathe, that was gone. I could drink a little bit and be sloshy like I heard my Kentucky grandpa was, or I could drink a lot and be fine, or I would be shaking or throwing up or it was just so massively uncontrollable that that's when my life really fell apart.
0: Oh, so more, so more, pardon the, the correlation here, but more of like a, a safety net, than, that safety net.
1: was. Yeah, gone. that's exactly what it was. It, and it, it's again, very common. And, you know, once I finally sobered up and had my head about me, I, I learned that that's super, super common. So, you know, here I was just anesthetized for years and I just was fine. I could talk fine. I had a radio career fine. I was, you know, I, I was a okay guy you know, so to speak with a point three, point four blood alcohol, really weird. So now I've, I've met this new woman. I'm, I'm married to this great woman. I've got my son from my first marriage every other weekend and a very strained, awful relationship with my ex at the time. And man, it was just awful. This poor woman, you know, it was only, it's really only her dysfunction that kept her with me. And, and I, I hate to say that, but it's true. And she knows it too but she's really the, the person that got me through the, you know, some of the worst five years that I've ever had. And so uh, that in that five year period, I was in a mental institution twice. I was in four inpatient treatment centers. I wrecked two or three cars and I mean, really wrecked them. Um, I was arrested uh, twice and I was in two jail stays, not like drunk tank at the, you know, Barney Fife jail, Like I went to jail, jail um, for, you know, over a month twice. Um, So here's this just awful stretch of time where I'm sober and I'm not, I'm sober and I'm not, and I'm sober and I'm not. And I want to be sober because the time that I was sober for seven months, even though I was, I see now very miserably getting through it, just gritting my teeth. I, and I never got any better is the problem. You know what I mean? I I didn't drink, but when you remove the alcohol, you're still left with this emotionally busted up person who was making all of his demons shut up by drinking a lot. That's the, that's what's underneath every addict is this really broken, awful person who has profound insecurity. You know, I was an egomaniac with an inferiority complex. So that was tough
0: that's a bad mix when you throw in alcohol.
1: Yeah, it really is. You know, and, and where it served to kind of keep me normal for, you know, a decade or more. It, it was really my downfall for those five years. And this poor woman just stayed with me. That's why I say we, you know, we don't have relationships. We have hostages. And at the end, I didn't think that I was going to make it. So I pushed her away. Um, tried to kill myself. I drank two half gallons in a fifth, uh, total. And, um, Holy yeah. cow! Yeah. I, I did have a nap in there at some point. And I, I say that kind of funny because they, I drank through the first half gallon and I was just starting the next half gallon. At, at some point, I passed out and I woke up an unknown amount of time later and I was all aggravated because I was literally, it's the first time I was literally trying to kill myself. Um, and it just, I couldn't pull it off. And I was like, oh man, now I slept. Now I need more booze. So I walked I staggered my way up to the store and I bought another fifth to add to the the other half gallon that I had and I put those down along with coffee this time because I had to stay awake to drink all the booze so I could kill myself you know a really sound plan um are much more effective ways of killing yourself but that was my plan so one would one would think that that's a a tragic enough story on its own but it kind of prepared me for a lot of the other things that our family went through. So my wife and I, again, my y- young, younger, second wife, we've got, you know, we've got this daughter. And then a couple of years later um, we had this son and it was interesting that prior to um, me sobering up for good, we had been trying to have kids, which would have been a terrible idea because I was you know, not sober and the poor woman probably would have ended up a single mom. And I would probably be in a box decomposing right now, but my, um, my wife and I had several miscarriages when I was drinking and the first one was really, really terrible. Um, they were, they were early, but late enough that we were telling everybody and we were, you know, picking out names and planning nurseries and things. And it's a terrible thing to say, but by like you know the one of the later ones, you kind of get a little jaded. You don't tell every, everybody when you get a pregnancy test positive because you don't trust it. And then as you lose them, you go, yeah, that was another miscarriage. Oh well, you know. And and I'm I'm not a welling because it wasn't terrible. I'm a welling because you become jaded. And so we kind of had resolved ourselves to the fact that we just weren't going to have kids. And then here we have this daughter, and I'm sober. And I'm, you know, I got my driver's license back now and I'm, you know, becoming a normal person and I'm carrying on a job and, um, she gets pregnant again. We get really excited and she loses it. And it was weird because it shouldn't have been really not expected, but there was this unspoken thing in our heads that when we had Evelyn, that we're, everything was better now. And, and, you know, that's not the case, obviously, <laughs> Um, so we lost this baby and it was in some ways for me, anyway, it was worse than the first one we had. And I was, you know, anesthetizing myself
0: more so because you had, <laughs> had rounded the, you felt like you had rounded a corner and things were, were evolving yeah, for the better. Changing
1: yeah. The and, better. Y- and, you know, I mean, I'm sure my wife and I've talked to about it over the years. I'm sure, you know, there was a bit of, you know, well, it, we didn't, we had miscarriage just cause you were drinking. Now you're not drinking. You're better. So even though you don't get better from being an alcoholic, you know, you do, I I wasn't drunk all the time, you know, so we're, we're thinking it was me. And so, yeah, we felt like we rounded this corner. We had this miscarriage. So she gets pregnant again and we're trying to have, you know, a sibling uh, for Evelyn. And, you know, here are my, my other sons, you know, eight years old, nine years old, and he's coming over every other weekend where we've rebuilt or started to rebuild that relationship. We have a fantastic relationship um, today. But there's that, you know, there, there's this sort of trying to get a sibling for Evelyn because now, you know, her brother's, you know, eight years older than her or whatever. And they play well together, but they're not, they're not, you know, close in age. And we know that as William gets older, that's going to become a divide. So she's now in this pregnancy, she's carried this baby to term, which is, is my son, Zach. And it's about six weeks out, a little over six weeks out and she's just having all this pain and he, Evelyn was over 9 pounds and Karen went to a midwife she wasn't even at a hospital there wasn't even drugs in the building and it was a 30 hour labor totally natural it was awful giving birth to Evelyn she was in, it was such a terrible experience she was like okay I'm going to go for the good old amnio and or whatever they call that in the you know in the spine I'm going to get a spinal and you know what I mean
0: so so went from the midwife and this time we're oh, yeah. the hospital. Karen's like
1: I'm gonna have drugs no way <clears throat> so fair enough pretty normal you know we had a pediatrician and we were going you know pretty normal pregnancy or typical pregnancy and we and we were about six weeks out and she's having all this pain it's terrible well we found out later that what had happened is Zach had dropped and he is he was in her pelvis and what had actually happened was she had separated her pelvis so right in the front where there's that fixed joint that had Broken. So she basically was walking around with a baby and a broken pelvis. And so we go to the hospital here in Howell, and they, you know, they're not really buying it. They're, yeah, you're six weeks off. You're not in labor. You're just, you, you don't understand the pain. And I'm trying to tell them, you got, you don't understand. She's kind of a rock star in terms of pain. She knows what pain is. And if she's saying this is a 10, I'm listening. And they, their solution was walk her up and down the hallway you know, and not realizing cause they're not going to x-ray her that she had a separated pelvis. So finally, at the end of the day, they were pretty awful bedside manner and they end up giving her a pain injection, a narcotic pain injection in her hip. And we go home in the morning and as the day goes on, she's got a fever and she's got a higher fever and a higher fever. And we call, I call her pediatrician and pediatrician says, you know, get her here or her OB, I'm, I keep saying pediatrician, her OB that's going to deliver the baby. And, um, she says, come meet me at Providence hospital. We're going to see why she's got this fever that's going up. Cause it was going up above 102, 103 ish area. So we get her there and they don't know why. And, you know, now they don't know is, is there an infection in her womb? And Karen's just now responding to it. And we can't find out. Cause if we do an amnio, she could just, all this infection could spill into her body. She could go septic and die. If Karen's got an infection and the baby's okay in the womb, if we try to do an amnio to check on the baby to see if the lungs are developed enough, the baby could die. Right. There's danger either way. So it was risk to Karen and or risk to the baby. And so they're, they're doing all these tests. They're trying antibiotics. They're trying to figure out what's wrong with her. And what had happened was she had gotten MESA, which is people have heard of MRSA, And she got mesophyllin sensitive Staphylococcus aureus, which is like MRSA. Um, But this one is sort of like in the movies. You get the bug and you're in a box three days later. If you don't do something about it, you're dead in in a very quick pace. So she's getting worse and worse and worse. And we got the monitors on her stomach and both she and the baby kind of start crashing. I'm in the room. No doctors are there. uh, Her mom and I were in the room, I believe. Uh, And I watch almost like drawing blinds. I watch her color kind of drain out of her face from top to bottom. It was really weird. It was almost like the sun on somebody's face as you take a shade up. Only, you know, all of her color washed out. The heart rates start going weird. Her temperature is up above 104. So I run down the hallway. I get the nurse. The nurse and I run back. She checks a couple things real quick. She runs down the hallway again. I'm with Karen. She runs back. And at this point, Karen's got ice packs and everything. They throw the gown at me and said, put this on. You're going to be a dad in 10 minutes. And they wheel her into the room and I go with her into the room and they, you know, she's twilight awake. Cause they're going to do a C-section. And I said, well, what about the baby's lungs? And they said, we need, we need to get them apart. We need to deal with two patients, not one, because we're going to lose one or both of them if we don't. So answer or no answer, they cut her open. They do a C-section. Then while they have her open, first of all, Zach cries, which is why I said earlier without a quivering voice, that's my son, Zach. So Zach made it. They take him out and, um, they put him in, you know, they're dealing with him in an incubator and they, they start calling down consults from all over the hospital. Um, you know, they get the different practices to come down cause she's wide open. I mean, a C-section is a huge incision. And so she's sitting there just under and they, the doctor actually says, you want to come look? You know, she's pretty out. Um, she's foggy anyway. She's saying all kinds of goofy, druggy things. And I walk around and he's like, yeah, here you go. Here's this, here's that. And he's showing me all these, <laughs> all of her body parts from the inside out. And all these consults are coming down and they're taking time. So now her spinal is wearing off. And even though the anesthesiologist is sitting there, she's like, uh, I can feel that. And there was, it was, you know, towards the end. But of the drugs, but not towards the end of her procedure because she's still wide open. They hadn't even started sewing her up yet. Her womb was laying on her chest. It was really weird. They had stitched up the womb, but they hadn't you know, put her together again. And so the anesthesiologist said, what do you mean you can feel it? And she said, it hurts, it hurts, pokes. I can feel it pokes. He gives her a shot. She goes night, night. And they get the last consult and they sew her all back up. And it really isn't until the next day they realize that she had MESA. So it was a close call, but now Zach's in the ICU and they diagnose him with a heart murmur and they say he's not right. And they, they go through a bunch of stuff and he's in the ICU and they diagnose him with adrenal, uh, let's see, it's called congenital, uh, congenital adrenal hyperplasia and short for it is CAH. So he's got this thing and what it causes is it's an over, it's an overstimulated male hormone thing, testosterone. When girls get it, that's how you get the bearded lady kind of thing. When boys get it, they, their voices drop when they're like seven and they get hair on their face and they're like these little wolf men, you know, they have tons of hair on their body and it's, it's just a kind of a terrible thing. They also have this awful fight or flight thing. Um, cause it's an adrenal problem. So you have to have, you have to give them injections every day for their entire life. Um, so I learned when we finally brought Zach home, I learned how to give him these injections and Karen comes home and she's got a pick line, which is for those who don't know, they put a, a tube into your arm that goes all the way up and through your artery and it dumps out right next to your heart. So that the medicine is injected directly into your heart. And she's got this little tube hanging out of her arm. And I'm giving her IV drugs for twelve weeks, every four hours. I think it was every four hours. I'm giving her oral drugs every six hours. I'm giving her other drugs for pain and stuff every eight hours. She's in a bed. Then, as weeks go by, she's in a wheelchair. Then she's in a walker. In the meantime, we're going through all this stuff with Zach. And I'm giving him, you know, we've I've learned how to give him these shots. I've learned how to give him this other shot if he goes into an adrenal fit because if he breaks his arm or has any kind of an action that causes normal adrenaline, it could kill him. So it's just this whole huge mix of things going on.
0: So just just so I'm, I'm making sure I'm, I'm understanding the timeline. Now, now at this time, was he still in the hospital or was he home with you at this point?
1: When I'm, um, he's home. Karen came home first. So I got, got kind of got used to the whole taking care of her thing. She was bedridden. She couldn't walk because of the separated pelvis thing. And she, there's, they figured out that she had this staph infection. So it was, you know, very clean room kind of a thing. Um, and then Zach comes home sometime later. And so now he's at home and we're dealing with that. Um, I could talk for another two hours about all of this stuff. So I'll kind of cut it short during that time. Um, I was going to a as much as I possibly could because I needed to talk about all this stuff. So even though, you know, people in 12 step programs will tell you it's not therapy, it's different. That's very true, but it's still a place for you to share that you were stressed out or, you know, you kind of wanted to drink and stuff. Because I'm still now, I don't know, two and a half, three years sober or something at this point. So I guess it was three years.
0: It's not therapy, hmm. but it's, it's got some characteristics of therapy where there's a conversational.
1: Yeah, aspects, exactly. And I, and I was, you know, I was at the time my job had me programming websites. So I kind of make this little family website. I had done that for Evelyn to kind of tell everybody about everything. Well, now it's two years later. And during this Zach thing, just keeping everybody informed, I had this giant family and I had a really big friend network and I had this other AA network and I had this religion church network. And I had all these hundreds and hundreds of people that are always asking about the baby and Karen and every day was something new. So I created this one webpage. And I mean, now I guess it would be a blog, but it was literally just a webpage. And I kept adding dates and times and things that were changing. And that really helped me. So if you ever hear somebody say, if you're going through something tough, you should try journaling. I hate writing. I hate reading. (laughs) And that is definitely a thing that that kept me sane.
0: We did that uh, last year when, when my daughter was in the hospital, Um, we used uh, Instagram and Facebook and we would post because it was easier to, to shotgun spread one message instead of having to take the time and call this person and call that person or send an email or a text. Uh, and we could, you know, everybody that needed to hear the message was able, you know, we told people, Hey, feel free to share this to anybody that you know, that would want to hear or need to hear. It was just, there was a simplicity in it. Um, but it also gave us an opportunity. And I, I, I I don't mind writing. Uh, I used to, I, I think I told you the other day when we talked originally that, uh, I used to, to write a blog years ago and, Um, wasn't real religious about it, but it was more or less when I had something pop in my brain that I need to get something off my chest or or something along those lines. Um, but so I I found that to be very for me very therapeutic. Journaling helped me kind of put my thoughts in order.
1: Yeah, and it definitely was that. And my wife journaled too. My wife still journals, you know, and and, you know, keeps physical hardcover books and stuff, and she's made journals for each of the kids and all that. <clears throat> what's interesting about it is that you know I, I didn't really appreciate that at the time either I didn't realize that that little web page was keeping me sane telling everybody with well, all these medical updates between Zach and Karen and then there's this heart thing and you know uh, and then the CAH and this Karen problem and the pick lines and then her pick line you know site got infected and that's all oh, she could go septic because that leads straight to the heart and it was just thing after thing after thing, and it was just brutal and relentless. It was definitely a thing where life felt relentless and I don't believe in fate, and I don't believe that you know that I'm being picked on uh, again, not to get too religious, but the Bible says that that no bad thing is caused by God, so I didn't think you know, I was a mad at God for testing me or throwing things at me. So when I say that, I don't, I don't mean that there's some intelligence that was necessarily picking directly on us. Um, but I think it was just life in general, and just the way things were were happening. Time and unforeseen occurrence befall us all, and and it was definitely that. It was just, just this mountain of stuff, and that that was definitely white knuckling too. Even with the journal and the the AA meetings. There was a whole lot of white knuckling where I just, that's the hardest thing I ever went through. My sobriety was the hardest thing I ever did. This thing with Karen and Zachary was the hardest thing I ever experienced or went through um, at that time in my life. So.
0: Uh, Fair enough. I can, I can appreciate
1: that. So we come out of the other side of that. And, you know, our lives are really never the same. What ends up happening, um, they find out that Zach doesn't have CAH. Um, so that was, so we were giving him all these hormones for, for no reason um, or hormone inhibitors or whatever it was we were giving him. I really don't even remember anymore. Um, so that's good. He's got a heart murmur. He goes and gets that checked every so many years. That's fine. Most doctors tell us that we would have never known he had a heart murmur unless all this crazy stuff was going on. You know, the only reason we even noticed it was because we were looking so close. So his life kind of becomes normal. Now, he was so young or so early. He was tiny, tiny, tiny. He was, you know, over six weeks early. So he's got profound ADD now. He's learning now. He's in, you know, he's 14 and a half ish and, and he's really managing himself well. And that was a struggle. He's dyslexic. So that's a struggle. Um, His eyes are real bad um and a lot of these things if you look them up individually that's a preemie thing you know he was he wasn't done cooking when he came out so a lot of these things right. you know, I, I think a lot of the troubles that he that he struggles with a lot of the things that he has health-wise are simply because of that shot I never sure. really, I never tied that together but that pain shot in her hip right now she has Mesa in her hip because you never it never goes away you kind of you get oh, it on, okay So she could have a flare up of it at some point, because I guess from what we were told anyway, she, that's where it is. And the way it was explained to us, it's settled in her hip. It's in her, she has it in her bones and it's in that hip where she got the shot. So, you know, we never had a lawsuit or anything like that, but it was pretty evident that that's what happened. The infectious disease doctor that took care of Karen said that it was very likely that that, that shot was a dirty shot and that's why she got it.
0: It was the causal the, that, yeah, and this was the effect. Okay,
1: yeah. Um. So you know that that struggle, we came out of the other side of that, and um, a number of years later, Karen's life changed a lot. Um, and the other, you know, several years go by, and she's she seems to be going getting worse in her life in general. Her health is getting worse. Her health is getting worse. A lot of pain. quality
0: quality of life is
1: yeah, crazy. Yeah, Her quality of life is degrading. You know, um, she ran a daycare uh, here in the home. When my daughter was born, she was doing mortgages. And then once she saw that baby, she was like, no way. Uh, and she had worked at a daycare, a couple daycares actually before. So she opened a daycare. We have a walkout basement and we turned it into a daycare. So it was it was kind of a hybrid between a home daycare and a center because we had an unofficial playground that was fenced in. And and the daycare downstairs was dedicated just to that. It wasn't our living space. And, and so she had run that for years. And so, you know, some of the pain and some of the aches and stuff, we just attributed to her working ridiculous hours because when you're a business owner you don't just go to the daycare and then leave you you do all the clerical crap after hours and you know it's that kind of a thing so
0: right five o'clock doesn't stop the clock
1: yeah so because of that you know a lot of what she experienced health-wise you know we attributed some to getting older even though she was a lot younger than she should be for some of these pains and come to find out now the probably the killing of the staph infection gave her a thing called ankylosing spondylitis so she was finally, um, uh, her rheumatic doctor, or whatever they call that, uh, rheumatician, I think he, um, diagnosed her with ankylosing spondylitis. Cause it was, they got it down to two things. They said, it's either lupus or AS and one of them kills you. And the other one makes you wish you were dead. So she ended up with the wish you were dead. So it's not going to kill her. Uh, in the 1800s, they called it bamboo back and it's an autoimmune condition where your body thinks your spine, well, your bones in general, but mostly your, your spine is where it focuses are the bad guys. So just like your body would build bone around a bullet as a foreign item, it thinks her spine is the bullet. So she will slowly over time have her spine fuse. She's got, I think one or two fusions right now in her tailbone. Um, and ironically they got really bad just before the fusion. And then once they fused, it got a little better. Well, you've seen a, a skeleton. The, tip of the tailbones, teeny weeny. So it got, it gets really painful and then it fuses and that subsides a little bit, but that's going to happen to her whole back over time. So,
0: so this is, this is a a slow process. correct.
1: Yep. It's a slow process. What ends up happening? A lot of people die from it uh, because they get in a, a minor car accident and then they strap you to the board and the person has fusions in their neck. And they push your head down onto the board to strap you to the board and it breaks your neck and you become paralyzed or it kills you. So that's one way that a A AS people die. Um, I've seen some commercials, actually, the lead singer from imagine dragons has it. Um, Oh, okay. So so I've seen him on some AS commercials. I was like, honey, come here. You know, that thing we took us so long to learn how to pronounce the guy from imagine dragons has it. Um. So, you know, as she gets older, you know, a lot of people wear a jump drive, like a medical (laughs) medical condition jump drive on their neck. They sell them for AS patients so that people can snap it off and go get her x-rays to see where her fusions are, if she's ever, you know, in a bad accident and that kind of thing. That's actually ingenious. Yeah, yeah, pretty neat. Sorry, I didn't turn my mic down for that edit.
0: No, no, you're fine. fine.
1: So she's got this a s and she's on this pain medicine over the years, and she gets to the point where um the next step is infusions that's that are kind of like chemo they're going to basically irradiate her immune system, and she would get infusions every month and we're like wow that's that seems a lot, you know so instead, she changes her diet. And she, you know, starts eating organic and she starts juicing. And we, we really changed the way the whole family works food wise. And, and she gets a lot of this under control and she goes off all her medicines and that did carry her for a number of years. Um, And then eventually it was that behavior plus medicine. And then the next medicine, and basically we ended up in the same place. So for the last several years, she's been getting infusions um, and they do manage her pain, but they basically are irradiating her immune system. So she's immunocompromised now. Um, so
0: we understand that my, my daughter is as well, and you know, it makes that's a different level of challenge,
1: it is, and it, it's it's a different way to live, you know. So, I, I went through now several changes in how I live, um, from you know, kind of getting it back to me, even no, though it's you know, it's not all about you, Michael. Um, but for the, well, f-
0: during this discussion, it can be,
1: yeah, for That's the, fine. for the purposes of the podcast, <laughs> you know, I,
0: I still, it can be about you.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, my name's on the masthead, I guess, for at least an hour. So, you know, I, I get through alcoholism and then I almost lose my wife, which to date is still one of the worst things I've ever gone through. Almost lose my son. Um, we have all these emotional roller coasters. Then Karen has this problem and she's, you know, she was all state and track. She's an athletic person. I'm the brainy nerd. She is definitely the, you know, the gardener and the, the sports person and the, the hiker. And, you know, she's enriched my life in so many ways that I, that I can't even list them all. And she's really, like I said, she's, she's my hero. She's, if there's a person in my life that I'm the most at all with, it's, it's Karen. Um, She's really inspiring the way she approaches life. And it's, it's very unique and she's affected me and changed me in a lot of ways. Um, and so, you know, the way she had, you know, heads off these things that are happening to her, just really kind of crazy. So she's now on these infusions and we get to a couple of years ago, it was, um, November 5th, um, 2017. So, uh, two and a half years ago. We're on our way to um, our kingdom hall, which is basically our church on Sunday. And we are at a, at an intersection that has all these accidents all the time. There's, you know, there's no light there. You're on kind of a side road turning on to a two lane expressway kind of deal. And there's at this intersection, there is a left turn lane. So it's three lanes there. There's the, you know, there's the right lane and the left lane or the oncoming and ongoing traffic. And then the middle lane widens up to be a left turn lane. And we're sitting there waiting to turn left onto this fast road, M59, uh, for those in the area.
0: I know exactly where you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, it was
1: it's at Eager Road, if you know the area in and, and M59. And eager's this tiny little road, and there's M59. And at that point, it's not very wide. At other places in Michigan, it's a it's a really wide, divided highway. And at this point, it's real narrow, but it's it's still fast. It's a 60-70 mile an hour stretch for most people, even though the speed limit's 55. And we're waiting to turn left, and I look down. And it's right by our house. So we drive this route all the time. And I look down and there's, you know, chunks and pieces and reflectors and fresh glass. And I look down and I say, oh, there's shrapnel from another accident. And, you know, I think it was my son was like, hey, you really need a light here. And we're all kind of grousing about this intersection. And I I look to the left and I look to the right. And to the right, I'm pretty clean. And I look to the left and here's like four or five cars that turn on their right blinker. And they they're going to turn right onto the road that we're coming off of. So at this point, I know that all the traffic is stopped because all these cars blinkers are on and they're all slowing down. So I start to go to turn left. Well, from behind that set of cars, there was a dude that jumped into the left turn lane and he was going to just go through the intersection around all these cars that were turning and I didn't see him. So I look to the left, I start turning and I look off to the right because now I've already cleared the left. So I'm just make, taking a double take to the right. And my wife, as I'm driving goes, Mike, Mike, Mike. She had seen a car between those other cars flying towards the intersection. So this dude's in a, uh, like a suburban or a, I don't know, it was a big truck. And, um, and he, I, I see, she says, Mike, 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 I look back, I didn't break. Cause I didn't know where the Mike, Mike, Mike was coming from. I didn't know what was happening. By the time I look back to the left, I see a grill and that was kind of all I see. And I said, "Hang on!" And I took this truck at sixty in the driver's door of a Ford Fusion, and it was an older one that didn't have side airbags, so that didn't help. Oh man, that's that's brutal. Yeah, it was it was really brutal. And it, uh, the kids were in the back seat. Zach was on my side. I did for an instance, like turn away. Um, you know, I turned the car away when I was saying, "Hang on." I I hit the gas, or I hit the brake rather, because I. Th- he was, when I saw the grill, he was going to hit me in the fender, but we were moving really fast and I didn't want it. I thought about Zach behind me and I didn't want him to hit Zach. So I hit the brakes and turned to the right. And this thing hits us and I probably pass out. I don't remember, but I kind of come to facing the opposite direction and I heard the noise. Well, Karen's head took out the passenger window. So she had a really severe traumatic brain injury. She's she'll hear this podcast eventually. She's probably about as good as she's going to get in terms of recovery at this point. Um, but she still has, you know, she struggles with memory. She struggles with what people say sometimes. Um, yeah.
0: TBIs are difficult because it's, it's my wife has one uh, as well. It affected her. Uh, she was in a rear ended by a uh, alcohol, alcoholic driver, a drunk driver years ago, um, sitting in the backseat of a minivan. And she, got her head rattled around and, and so it affects her short-term memory and and a few other things which i use to my benefit from time to time but that's another story yeah it was <laughs> and it was kind of interesting too because
1: i i got a brain injury too i was diagnosed with a concussion as well and um and uh, so did my daughter and my son well all four of us had concussions <clears throat> from one place or another karen's had, karen's was clearly the worst i mean like i said she took out the passenger window um my shoulder got busted up my um collarbone was busted in like five places and pulled away from my sternum and all that stuff and so i had to have surgery but that kind of recovery is more of a black and decker kind of recovery you know you go to a surgeon and they open you up and they put all the pieces together with screws and a and a battery drill and you you know then you go through pt and
0: you know you stitch you up send you home here's some medicine to help you get yeah through.
1: exactly you know i i did go through it with no um no medicine at all hang on one second
0: so you, you went through the process
1: without medicine. There's where I was. Yeah. So yeah, I go, I go through the process without medicine. So normally they give you that twilight stuff and you're kind of drunk when you're on your way in and you don't really remember going to the OR, but I, not only did I go into the OR wide awake, but I, I was like laying there on the gurney and they all got around me to pick me up and put me over onto the other thing. And you know, here's my shoulder just profoundly broken up, like really bad. So I was in a ridiculous amount of pain. Um, And I was like, "Uh, I can get on the table if you want. And they're like, oh yeah, well, sure. I mean, we're used to you being out by now. And so I just kind of scooched off the gurney and onto the table. And you know, the guy showed me all the parts that were candidates for my surgery as this lovely shiny set of stainless steel flatware is going to be in your shoulder, some of it. Um, And then they put the nose mask on me and I was kind of twilighted a little bit, but I didn't, you know, the takeaway was I didn't want to feel drunk. Um, I was just, scared of that. So I, I went through the recovery with no narcotics either. you know, they promote, they prescribed me one, you know, bless their hearts, but, um, it was really painful. It was, and I, I won't discredit that it was very, very painful, but it also served to take the spotlight off my wife, which is really unfortunate. Um, cause I can predict the weather with my shoulder, but she's still not okay. And probably won't be. Um, and you know, that's, that's one that's really difficult to your point though, about about using the memory loss to your advantage. Yeah. I was having a lot of trouble at the beginning too, because I was, you know, I was a a brain injury also. So I was very forgetful. It became the most peaceful several months of our marriage, I think, because it was like that whole thing where I told you, no, you didn't. Yes, I did. Yeah.
0: I probably didn't. So (laughs) everybody had a yeah, everybody had a you know get a jail-free card. yeah
1: it was really kind of funny we ended up laughing at ourselves and my daughter and my son and we we were always just kind of like hey, what did you just what did you think i said it was you know because we were you know she had cognition problems so you know you'd say something and she'd be like the pink dinosaurs in the pool what are you talking about and it's like really you thought <laughs> you thought out of all the things i could have said that would have said that was the best that's where i went right that's where I went with this. Yeah, it's like really you thought that's what I said? That's the best you could come up with. That's kind of like when you you know, when you're you're talking to your phone and dictating text and Google doesn't even know what you said. It's like, man, I know all the words and I still don't know what you tried to type or say right there, you know? And it was <laughs> it was like that, you know. It's kind of um sure, sure. It was kind of funny for a little while, and now it's kind of not, you know. She you know, she just went through therapy. Finally, her therapist was like. We both went to vestibular therapy, which I didn't even know was a thing. Um, we had all these different things we had to do. And, and Karen's still not better, you know, not, not completely. So now she's you know got this TBI and, and this, you know, AS and we are, uh, it's interesting. She's still the most inspiring person I have. So now cut to just a, as if that wasn't enough, you cut to the last several months. And for anybody who listens to this podcast years from now, um, we are all at home because of COVID-19. And if anybody doesn't know what that is, then it's a lot of years from now and you're just not too old enough to remember it.
0: You were either a baby or, or, or not. created during, yep. during, during the quarantine. During the lockdown, so. yeah.
1: So yeah, the world's a very different place. And so we're here, we're in this place of, of quarantines and lockdowns. And I've got my wife who is this immunocompromised, high risk person to get killed by this virus that we have and know nothing about. So that's probably the scariest thing ever. Right. So we're, you know, and we're in lockdown, we're getting through lockdown just fine, you know? Sure. Um, but come to find out that, she, you know, and, and for the purposes of the discussion, COVID-19 is a like a, like a two week thing before it can show symptoms. Can right. The incubation, be, Yeah. It can be up to 14 days. You can be carrying this thing around. So all of us go into this quarantine lockdown stuff. And at first I was working from home um, and, you know, we're trying to be so hyper careful because we don't know which one of us might be carrying it. Sure. So we're being super, super careful, not because we're afraid for ourselves. We don't want mom to get it. If Mom gets it. She could literally die very easily. All four of us could die, but mom's at high, high risk. Right. Right. So, you know, we're all like, just sanitizing everything and not touching each other, not going near each other. And, you know, every piece of silverware is only used it once. And then it's quarantined and we're rinsing the dishes with bleach water and just really going crazy above and beyond. And sure, sure enough, Karen gets sick and then Evie gets sick. And then I get sick and Zach is sick and we all end up, you know, Karen and I were di- diagnosed with COVID-19 and Zach and Evie, are assumed. Both of our doctors, Karen and I say, yeah, you should just, you know, it's not worth wasting a test right now because it's a, it's a global problem. Um, Right. But,
0: but if you have the parents had, chances you you
1: know, you guys have been in a house for the last five weeks. Karen's been sick for two of them. You're, you're now coming down with it or three of them, or I can't remember how far in Karen and Evie had it the longest. Karen was probably eight or nine weeks. Fortunately, we never got her to the intubated and dead stage well, that's good yeah, that's a plus yeah.
0: by comparison
1: now when you talk to Karen about it, obviously uh, when we were talking about this podcast um, beforehand and and what it was you and I were going to talk about, it, I reacted to you you know you re- uh, reached out to me you know digitally, and when I read it to my wife, we all were kind of like well, what What does he want to talk to you about? And, you know, I would hope that in a normal situation, if somebody approached you for a podcast that was about going through something awful and getting to be on the other side of that thing, that you would know what it was they were talking about, that you would have had one thing in your life that was like, oh yeah, clearly (laughs) he wants,
0: but here you are holding this deck of cards. Yeah.
1: And it's, Uh, yeah, it's this thing where it's like, what does he want to talk to you about? I'm like I don't know. Well, is it your alcoholism recovery? I don't know. I'm. I was like, it could be the car accident, and she, and you know, I was. Well, like, oh, it could be you know your your AS thing and your staff infection or, or or Zach or you know, it could be any one of those things. And neither one of us, even though we're still in quarantine lockdown at this point, and we're all better. We're you know now just we're sick of each other and we're not sick from COVID-19. Well, yeah. Um, (laughs) Weirdly enough, enough, getting sick made the lockdown easier because none of us wanted to do anything anyway. Um, So that was fine. You're you're off work. Yeah, great. I just want to sleep and watch movies anyhow. But here we are, you know, you approached me for this podcast, COVID-19, as recent as it was, wasn't even something my wife and I considered that you wanted to talk about. Wasn't in the top yeah, three, it huh? didn't even make the list. It was like, wow, that's, Impressive. you want to talk to us about getting COVID-19. That's nothing. Um, so yeah, it was, it was really kind of funny when, you know, when you and I got on the phone the other day, I was like, yeah, hey, I, I really wanted to talk to you before we went into this podcast. Cause I've kind of had, this is awful, but I've had a lot of really terrible things happen. And, uh, <laughs> and I don't know which one of them you want to talk about and when you said covid i was like oh covid shoot that's been fun are you can comparatively speaking <laughs> and done with yeah, that yeah that's odd. of the we we're working in the yard i'm i'm doing construction in my basement right now um so i mean the takeaway is you know back in in aa years and years and years ago um i heard a guy say one time you're trying too hard and i was on my fourth step and for those not familiar, your fourth and fifth step are two of the big scary ones that people that go through recovery, um, kind of talk about. And if you quote unquote, work the steps, um, you do a fourth step and you work your fifth step and it's a pair. And the way the 12 steps go, I'm not going to list them because it's too boring. Um, but the way the steps go is it's like, um, set up action, set up action. And step four is you made of, Searching in fearless moral inventory of ourselves, going back to as far as back as you can remember. And it's literally, people have probably heard about this who haven't been through recovery. It's literally everything you can think of that you've ever regretted ever, ever, ever. Not things you're mad at. Things that you've done, whether it's to somebody else or to yourself or whatever.
0: So a list of your mistakes and issues and
1: yeah. And it's gotta be searching and fearless. And when they say that, I mean, you write down everything, you write down the stuff that nobody knows about and that you plan to take to your grave. And nobody's ever going to know about it.
0: The deepest, darkest depths of your, your skeletal. And
1: if you're doing it right, you're supposed to write them all down. And that was one of the things that I struggled with in the five years. I ain't doing that. I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to list some stuff, but I'm going to go only list the stuff that you know, that I, that I'm comfortable sharing. Cause step five, is you share that list with another human being. Actually, the step says something like we shared our list with God and another human being. So the other God parts, usually easy for everybody, even an atheist. It's like, (laughs) Oh yeah, I'll silently admit this. I've already done that when I wrote it down. Well, yeah, Yeah, you did. That's why you have to tell somebody else and it's not therapy. And the other person doesn't, you know, comment on it it's just simply telling it to another person and it's this weird therapeutic thing that happens where you get all of this crap out and you look at it with another person and you go wow that that really wasn't all that terrible they weren't shocked at anything i told them because it's usually another aa right okay so nothing really surprises you when you've heard some of the crazy crap drunk people do So that process, that hazing, so to speak, was, was really like a smelting of myself. And I am still a terribly sick and twisted person, but there was a point in AA, and this is kind of what took me down that rabbit hole for a moment, but I'll come back to it. Now I was, I was having trouble with my fourth step, but it was during this sobriety. So it was, it was the first time I was really approaching it for real. And I was sharing at the table at an AA meeting that I was struggling. And this old guy said, if you're work, if you're worried about your fourths and fifths, if you're worried about your fifth step while you're doing your fourth step, you haven't got the second step, right? And second step is uh, second and third steps are like the whole God part of it where you don't even have to believe in God. You just have to believe in some sort of higher power. Everybody's familiar with that about 12 step programs. Yeah. The the higher higher power power. thing where, you know, whether it's God or nature or your own self, some people's higher power is themselves. You know, you've got to believe that there's something greater than you that can restore you to sanity. And the guy was right. He said, if you're worried about your fourth and fifth step, then you haven't really turned your life over to whatever your higher power is because you wouldn't care. And he said, if you, it's like a cat. And this was the illustration that I still remember today. He says, if, you know, if a cat chases its tail, like you're chasing sobriety, It'll never catch it. But if the cat. Puts one foot in front of the other. And just walks purposefully. In the direction they're supposed to walk. That tail will follow them. Everywhere they go. Quit chasing your own sobriety.
0: That's kind of cool actually.
1: Yeah it was really. it, It was super profound. Yeah it was. It was a thing that I didn't expect. And I had been to. Hundreds of AA meetings. I mean, I'd been, by this time I'd been sober a couple of years and I was still trying to work. Well, I'd been sober at least a year and I'm still trying to work these steps and I'm stuck on four and there's 12, you know what I mean? Um, right. And once he said that it was this moment of kind of like, aha, it was, oh yeah, I just need to kind of get through stuff, but not white knuckling. It was different. It was Another thing I heard in the program was do the next right thing. And I, I heard it recently in a non-recovery sense too on a TV commercial or, or something. And you just do the next right thing. You just, just keep doing the next right thing. And I have always kind of tied that phrase into the cat, you know, is that just keep doing whatever the next right thing is. And what it, what it causes you to do is, you know, if you're, if you're in your car and when you're learning to drive, you glance up at your mirror and you glance at your side mirrors, but you're watching the road and you're taught in driver's ed. And it's, it's fresh in my memory. Cause my daughter just, you know, she's driving now. She's got her first job at Taco Bell and, and she just learned to drive. And there's that whole point where you're driving with your kid and you're kind of teaching them. Well, obviously you don't, you got to glance at those mirrors and you got to glance at them all the time. So when we're teaching Evie, you know, there's these teaching moments and Karen's really good at teaching the kids to drive. I'm, that's not my job. She's done that. Um, and You know, you check your mirror quickly, but that's it. And you don't linger linger in it because if you're looking in the rearview mirror, you're going to really wreck the future. You're really, you're going to get in a car accident. You're going to hit a person or a dog or a tree. You cannot look at it, but you have to be aware of it. And that that was the thing I took forward from the program, too, was... You cannot regret the past. Actually, it says we. And this is from Narcotics Anonymous, I believe, if I remember right. We will not regret the past but aren't willing to shut the door on it. And that's a a double-edged coin that you really have to kind of digest. You can't regret... If you regret the things you've done and you drag them like drayage behind you, you're never going to get anywhere either. And...
0: No, it's dead weight that's going to hold you down. And if
1: you're still bitter that you're in the situation you're in, my dad's a diabetic. He came over yesterday. I love my father. He's taught me so many life lessons. Life's about the what and the when, the how's in a book. He taught me that about computers and software. Mm -hmm. But it is about the what and the when. What are you going to do and when are you going to do it? The how to live your life, in my case, is in the Bible. There's Bible principles all through the whole book. And that's how I live my life. For a person in recovery, you get a lot of other things to live, whether it's in the AA book or the or the AA big book or the NA book or whatever 12-step program you're in, you you pick up other things from those books, right? Um, if you're a, a college kind of guy and, and a big, heady thinker, maybe it's philosophy, um, maybe it's your family, but You learn these things from other people's experience. You learn these things from books. You learn these things. So, you know, life is about the what and the when, what you're doing with all this crap. But the how's been written already a million times over. Correct. It's been written. It's done. So anything that we're struggling with, it's only as far as looking at the next person that's struggling with, that struggled past tense with the same thing and they're not doing it anymore. You know, they're not in the craziness anymore. If you're living in the insanity, then yeah, you're crazy. Um, there was a guy named Wayne Dyer. My dad was a um, Dale Carnegie uh, trainer um, when I was growing up. So I, I learned his, you know, all my speech eloquence and stuff that I have. I say tongue-in-cheeky because I keep you sitting here clearing my throat. Um, I get all, I get all <laughs> of that from him too. Um, he, was, he was very good at teaching me to present myself and to talk and to be cohesive in my thoughts and all that stuff. And and he taught me all these lessons without even realizing that he was teaching me. So that kind of stuff is stuff that I didn't realize until I got sober. And until I got past Karen and Zachary, and until we got past the car accident, And I keep kind of relearning the same things over and over and over but it's a re- it's really a reaffirmation of things we've already learned. So you can't regret the past, but you shouldn't shut the door on it either. You still have to keep glancing in the mirror. And like I said, my dad's a diabetic now and he's still teaching me because he came over. We were celebrating my 18 years of sobriety. They, I didn't know that, you know, they were going to necessarily bring a cake with, with candles on it. And it was pretty kind of pretty fun. Um, but sure. my dad grabbed his insulin and he took some insulin and he shared a dessert with me. And he took some extra insulin because this was super, super sweet. And I had a buttercream frosting that was amazing. But
0: that oh, sounds it wonderful. Delightful.
1: But it was, you know, it was another example of he didn't ask to be a diabetic, but he's not gonna sit here and be bitter about it because he wouldn't have enjoyed the right. evening. He's just gonna take a little extra insulin this one time, because mm-hmm. I'm gonna pretend he never does that. Um And make do. do. And I can't drink. So when we were, you know, when I got married to my second wife, I had, you know, I had, I think it was uh, Sprite maybe, you know, so it was bubbly and she had champagne and we, you know, we had our little glasses at the head table and I didn't look weird because I didn't have a drink in front of me. And, you know, it's just this, it's just this thing. And you get the acceptance part is when you realize that you're not mad at why you had happened whatever happened. And that, that's really the, you can't be happy on the other side of a tragedy if you don't accept that the tragedy just happened because it did and it doesn't matter who or what caused it does not matter. It's right. Meaningless. This is where it- that took me, a that took me a little while to get to. And that's,
0: you know, part of the, the stuff that you're talking about is also some of the stuff that I talked with, with our therapist, because, you know, we went in and trying to delve in and kind of figure out some of these things. And so even though I wasn't going through um, AA and things along those lines, uh, some of the, the, the talking points are, are very much the same because there's, there has to be an acceptance of what you've gone through. And, uh, you know, and to know that, uh, yeah, it's always going to be in your rear view. But you know, uh, the way that she put it was, uh, she used the word linger. If you linger in the rear view, it uh, causes causes the crash in, in your yeah. in
1: front of you. Yeah, and that's a, probably a good way to say it is linger. You know, you can't you can't shut the door on it like a, like Na tells their you know they're people. You can't can't shut the door on it. You got to keep an eye on it. If I didn't, it's
0: part of who you yeah, are. It's who it's-
1: you are. I mean, you know, people. It, you know, it, when they start celebrating your sobriety early on, you kind of you feel weird about it because it's like, oh yeah you're, you're congratulating me for not being drunk all the time for not wrecking cars, for not stealing money from my wife's purse, for not yelling when I shouldn't yell for, you know what I mean? You're congratulating me for being what you already are every day, a functioning grown-up. you know, get
0: <laughs> right. For being yeah, a functioning a human being. being a so yeah. Person. So yay,
1: yeah, yay me really. Cause I'm acting like you've always acted great. You know, so you don't, feel kind of good about it, but you're also trying a lot more in those early years. So it's this reversal that happens. Now I appreciate when I get the cake and I'm not trying hardly at all. I mean, I say hardly at all, at all. I don't try to stay sober anymore because to your point, you use the perfect words. It's just who I am now. I just don't drink anything. I can make drinks for people. I can smell wine on my fingers because I pulled the cork out for my wife and it does not bug me. Um, you know, there are still things that will make me think about drinking, but, but the option oh, sure. isn't there anymore. It's, it's a curious thought. And I'm very, very aware that if I start drinking again, I'll probably die because my body's just not going to own it. Um, so there's some have tos still, but I'm not white knuckling my way through life but,
0: anymore. But it's an acceptance of yeah, your limitations. Yeah, it's an
1: acceptance of limitations. It's a, you know, my watching my wife again. She's got this autoimmune disease. She's got, you know, just so many things that have gone wrong for this poor woman. And she smiles and she's a great teacher with my kids. Um, you know, even when they go to regular schools, they're not homeschooled, but when they're here, everything's a teaching moment. And she gardens and she cans. And she does organic stuff and she feeds us well and she learns new recipes. And she's just constantly being a better person all the time. And, you know, I, the reason I think she inspires me so much is because I went as far as being a person (laughs) that's about where I kind of stopped. It's like, okay, I'm not awful anymore. Good. You know, that's, that's as far as I kind of took myself. I, I hope I'm getting better as I get older. Um, you know, getting closer to my, my higher powers, so to speak, and, and getting, being a more spiritual man as I get older and, and being a better parent as I get older, I hope I'm improving, but I still look at me compared to Karen. I'm a joke. I, I got as, you know, I went, I went as far as not, you know, lying and cheating everybody all the time. You know, I'm a, I'm a brutally honest person all the time, which means I'm also probably pretty tactless and careless a lot of the time. Um, you know, so I, I kind of inherited new flaws along with all of the hard stuff we went through and all the skills that we got, um, cause it does harden you, you know, over, over things. Um,
0: well, it gives, I, I found that some of these experiences in life, uh, also give you a new way of looking at things and create it creates a new sense of humor, um, to where things that you may not have found funny before are now funny, um, uh, and I call it I call it a, a dark humor, so to speak, uh, just because you have to have a level of a, a going back again to a level of acceptance for it. and Just going, OK, well, this is, you know, if I don't laugh about it, I'm going to lose my mind. Yeah, that's extremely
1: uh. insightful, actually, that you pointed that out, because it's true. It is true. I mean, the, the older I got and the more things that we've gone through, even my kids, I've noticed that my kids lately have a very dark kind of humor. Karen almost kind of recoils sometimes. And you're right. When you get real close to dying, joking about dying is a lot easier. Um, and and for what would be taboo to somebody else. You know, I, I often say things that people kind of gasp at a little bit. And it's just <laughs> that's just because. That's my daughter. Yeah, oh, that. right. And she, <laughs> she went through it on the other side from where you were. You know what I mean? She, it's kind of right. like, you know, in Karen and Zachary's situation, you know, I'm you. And they are your daughter. You know, you, it was awful for you. Well, what was it like for her? I mean, she's got to learn that, you know, she's, right. she's got to deal with being an immunocompromised person from now on, you know, and, and, and that's not, you know, she's going to have to get there and be able to laugh at stuff that other people would go, oh my gosh, you know, that was uncomfortable that you joked about that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> she's made a few jokes even with our doctor, and the doctor kind of looked at us and like, well, hey, you know, that's, uh, it's her life her experience if she wants to joke about it you know yeah I
1: absolutely tell her no. and you I, know
0: so that's yeah, how she goes, I, I mean guess. the whole
1: world is talking about new new normal on the other side of covid but you know everything we do creates a new normal even little little stuff
0: yeah that's kind of our catchphrase i think now is that you know we're always every day we're discovering a new normal there's something different that we have to tweak and do differently because of of yeah. life situations and i you know
1: i really uh, when you invited me to, to talk today, I, you know, I, I checked out your podcast and stuff, and I think that it's a fantastic uh, service, I guess, that you're doing um, because podcasts are so accessible and so um, kind of universal for everybody. You can find a podcast about the one exact weird thing that you're interested in. And, and this is the opposite of that. I think that, you know, you don't have to have gone through a terrible, terrible thing or lots of them like we have to, to be able to benefit. You know, I said earlier about, you know, we, the how's in a book. Well, the, how is in our friends. It's in our church. It's in our God. It's in our Bible or, or whatever that is. It's in our, our community. Uh, it's in our children, the way your daughter handles what she's handling. Yeah. If you go through something later, you know, hopefully not, but if you do, you're going to draw from watching her so you know we can either learn from that just like me with aa i was doing mike's anonymous for five years and it it was awful i wrecked a ton of cars and i had a lot of inpatient stays and almost died more than once or i can do it you know at that in my case it was like i can do it like the book says to do it and i can stay sober because they literally promise it it's like everybody that does this will stay sober if you do these things you'll stay sober and now i believe that and I'm not even doing AA anymore. It's I'm many years from AA having attended it. Um, but it's, it's true. You just do go look at somebody else. that's done it and figure out how they did it and do what they do. It's so simple when you, you know, it's the problem is when we're going through something, we're too close to it to realize that it's that easy.
0: Yeah. The expression, you can't see the forest for the trees is where it comes in. Yeah. Yeah. You can't see the simplicity in front of you because you've, you know, and a lot of times when, you know, with my kids, as they were growing up, I, you know, whenever they were faced with an issue and as a matter of fact, I was just talking to my son the other night. Um, you know, he's newly married trying to decipher a lot of things going on in life and, and, you know, work in this COVID situation and, and he's got cars that are giving him issues and fits and all these, you know, both cars broke down at once. And there's this issue and that issue. And, and, uh, you know, as I used to tell him when he was little, like you know instead of looking at it all as one big issue find that, find the small piece that you that you can adjust that you can control and fix that piece and then build from out from there you know instead of trying to tackle it all at once, find the controllable piece that 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 will give you some semblance of sanity and then and yeah. then move forward from there and and you know and that's kind of how we approached things last year with my daughter, too is that okay? You know, we have this massive issue in front of us. Uh, what are the small things that we can control? You know, how do we deal? How do we push forward? You know, how do we stay focused on that?
1: Yeah, yeah. and it really is. I, have, I wrote on a whiteboard next to my desk at work that I haven't seen in two and a half or three months. Um, you know, progress is about doing a bunch of little things, not about doing one big thing. Because <clears throat> I, was, I was having trouble approaching, I handle auto shows for work. And uh, getting an auto show stand together for someone, for a company is this massive, you know, many millions of dollars process. And I learned from this company that basically the professional way to do the things that I learned how to do in my personal life. I was too stupid to, you know, to apply it. I was like, holy cow. I come up when I first got this job many years ago. I came home and I was like, honey. I'm making up budgets that I don't even understand how it's going to work in the end. <laughs> it's like freaking me out. I budgeted $8 million worth of stuff today <laughs> and of somebody else's money. And I don't even know if it's right. It's, you know, I was really freaking out, but it, it is, it's how to eat an elephant, you know, it's the one bite at a time, little measurable. Right. Increments. Exactly. I learned, uh, I learned uh, German so- on the way to and from work. Um, Cause I, I have about an hour, hour and a half commute each way. And, so instead of listening to music or go crazy because of the traffic, I listen to German. So, you know what I mean? Little incremental. Well, there you Things. Go. Yeah.
0: Budgeting your time. Yeah. So if if you could sum all of life's experiences into uh, the one, is, is there one thing that helps you? Because you know, we when everybody that we've talked to, we always find one thing that that they that they've gone through or or has helped them. What has helped you to remain focused on moving forward?
1: Um,
0: I know that's a lot to pare down over the, the course of our discussion and the course yeah, of your is. life, but you know what's the, what's your silver lining that you find that helps you to focus on moving forward? Because you know we can't sit in, in, in neutral with life; we have to we have to put it in drive and keep going. Yeah,
1: that's tough. I, I have two things. Um, it's the okay. Fire away. So. The two things that I that I'm struggling with, I'm just going to tell you what both of them are because it's I I can't seem to separate them. Okay. Uh, the first one is the one that, you know, is such a big thing that I pulled forward from recovery, which is acceptance. Every time I've hit a challenge in life, I always boil back to acceptance, even if it's being mad at somebody. You know, if I'm mad at somebody. It's usually fear-based, which is really weird. If I really dissect why I'm mad at them, it's, it's, I'm afraid they're not going to do something for me. I'm afraid that I'm going to fail at something because of something they did. I'm afraid some bad thing's going to happen because of what they're doing. It's almost always fear-based and it's almost always because I'm not accepting the situation or the person, uh, you know, the person place thing or situation, I'm not accepting it for what it is. That's one of the biggest things. Um, when you get a challenge, you have to just accept that that's there. You know, being mad about why you're there doesn't help anybody, including you. But the other thing is um my ice just dropped, so I'm gonna start that sentence again. Take two. Told you I'm right next to the kitchen.
0: Um <laughs> no worries at all.
1: So the other thing is humility you have to be humble enough to know you need help. You have to be humble enough to look for a way to do things different than what you think is the best way. Um, Most of the time when something terrible happens to us, it's the first time it's ever happened to us or it wouldn't be that terrible. Um, You know, if we have to deal with a gunshot wound, we're going to freak out and we're going to handle it. However, our adrenaline lets us handle it. But somebody who's in an ER They know how to deal with those all the time because they just, "Eh, yeah, we had two gunshot wounds today. It was kind of a heavy night at work. Well, when we have something terrible happen to us, we have to be humble enough to realize it's awful for us because we've never done this before. So blogging, asking people in a group setting that's gone through whatever you've gone through, um, just hearing people be bummed out and mad at all the same things you're bummed out and mad at, Um you know, the scriptures say there's a wisdom in the multitude of counselors, and that's true. Not everybody's going to have gems of priceless advice, but sometimes, sometimes it's just as simple as being humble enough to know you need help to get through it. And I don't know how to really separate the humility from the acceptance. I, I, I'm sorry, I gave you two answers to your, to your no, that's one good. question, but I don't no, think it's he...
0: multifaceted. I think, yeah. they, I think they go hand in hand personally.
1: Yeah. I don't, I don't think that there's a way to separate those two things. I don't know that just one of them will do the job.
0: No, that's okay. No, you know, um, you've, I get the sense that we could talk for hours and hours more. Uh, I, I really appreciate you being willing to come on and, and talk with us. And, and I'm, I'm grateful that you, uh, understand the premise of, of what we're trying to accomplish here. We want people to, to be able to know that there's other people in the world who have have gone through maybe some of the things that they've gone through and, and, uh, or they know someone who's going through some of the things that we've, we talk about on these episodes. Um, and, and so you've dealt with some very real life situations and I'm grateful that you were, uh, so willing to be open about them and talk with us at length about them. And, uh, just glad to have you on today. Thank you.
1: No, thank you. I'm very privileged to talk about it and, uh, and to be here.
0: Well, I, I do appreciate your time. And, uh, I think that's going to conclude us for today, but you know, um, you know, a- as we tell everybody at the end of our podcast or, or what I'm starting to try to tell everybody is just, you know, just remember to be focused on forward and, and, and enjoy your life one step at a time. And I think I'm going to take your cat illustration, uh, with me forward. That's my gem for today. I try to find one thing. Uh, my last podcast, it was, uh, you know, he, uh, Joshua talked about, uh, the importance of a, a gratitude strategy. And that's something I was already doing, but I wasn't phrasing it oh, like that's that. A
1: good one. See, I didn't think of that one,
0: you know, having a gratitude strategy, finding the silver lining and everything that, that life throws at us. Um, and so I was already doing that, but not phrasing it like he did. And I liked how he phrased it and, I already, you know, kind of did the, uh, you know, uh, when you were talking about the cat illustration, I already kind of do that to some degree in my life with other things. But, you know, uh, I can find a lot of ways for that to, to make sense. And instead of chasing things, I let it follow me through. So uh, thank you for your wisdom and your experiences. Thank uh, you. And, and uh, we appreciate your time. And that will conclude us today for Focused on Forward. Thank you guys. Continue to follow us. And we look forward to hearing you the next. Well, that concludes another episode of focused on forward to be a guest of focused on forward. You can reach us through Twitter at podcast F O F through our Facebook page named focused on forward or through email focused at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing each and every one of your stories that has yet to be told. So until then be safe, be kind and be loving to one another as you stay focused on Forward.